Welcome to the American Reformer Podcast, promoting a vigorous Christian approach to the cultural challenges of our day and rooted in the rich tradition of Protestant social and political thought. Hosted by Josh Abitoy and Ben Dunson. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Reformer Podcast. I am the co-host, Ben Dunson, the executive director of American Reformer. And with me, we have uh, my co-host, Joshua Abatoy, who is the executive director of American Reformer. Josh, you want to say hi? Hi, everyone. Ben, good to see you. Yeah, you as well. All right. So last week we had our inaugural podcast and uh, we, we got into some of the details about what we're going to do with this podcast. And this week we're going to get into the meat of all sorts of fun topics. Uh, we're going to uh, first take a look at a sermon preached by John Witherspoon in 1776, which was a, a very influential sermon um, at the time of the American Revolution. And then after that, we're going to move it into the present day, and we're going to start talking about what uh, has been making the rounds these days, which is the topic of national divorce. So give you a, a good, uh, good dose of uh, old America and new America in, in all of that. Ben, I think I speak for myself and maybe part of our audience when I ask you, you know, what is this Witherspoon article? Where did you dig this thing up? Um, you know, how is this relevant to today? Why, why are we even talking about Witherspoon? Isn't he a, um, you know, irredeemable, uh, you know, racist slaveholder? Right, right. Yeah, no, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, there's been quite a bit of uh, rage directed his way at uh, Princeton recently, uh, trying to get his statue pulled down and all of that. Uh, there's actually some a couple of good articles by Kevin DeYoung on uh, Witherspoon and, and uh, slavery, if you, if you want to check those out. Uh, but that's not what we're, uh, we're going to talk about today. Uh, we're going to look at Witherspoon because this sermon that he preached, uh, which in addition to just being historically significant, uh, is also uh, the kind of thing that we like to do at American Reformer, which is uh, talk about Protestant politics, a Protestant approach to politics, and not just uh, Protestant, but in particular, Protestantism in the American context. And this sermon that Witherspoon preached is a really good way to do that. It's just a, a fascinating sermon uh, in, in many ways. Um, for, for people who aren't familiar with Witherspoon, uh, he was a Scottish Presbyterian pastor. He moved to America and uh, became the president of Princeton University, uh, which at the time was called the College of New Jersey. Uh, it was struggling at the time, and he he turned it around. Um, this was in 1768, and he um, was there all the way till his death in, in 1794. Uh, Witherspoon was hugely significant um, in America's founding. Uh, he signed the Declaration of Independence. Um, he, in addition, to, was the, the president of what's now Princeton. 
Uh, and he trained at Princeton a huge number of very significant figures in, in the early uh, American period. Um, three Supreme Court justices who would uh, eventually sit on the Supreme Court, uh, 10 members of cabinet, uh, 12 members of the Continental Congress, 28 U.S. senators, 49 U.S. congressmen, um, his most prominent students, Aaron Burr, James Madison. Um, it, it would it'd be hard to overstate the, the significance and, and the influence of, of Witherspoon. Uh, he was the, um, the only clergyman to uh, sign the Declaration of Independence, and he preached this sermon in 1776, which was called The Dominion of Providence Over the Passions of Men. And this was early in 1776. So this is right at the beginning of the, the Revolutionary War. Um, and there were a, a lot of people that were wondering, including Christians who were wondering, what do we do? Um, war has already started between the colonies and Britain. And they're wondering how to approach that. Should should we be on the side of the crown? Should we be on the side of the rebels? Should we try to be neutral in some way, which wasn't really much of a possibility at that time? And uh, and Witherspoon then preaches this sermon. Uh, it's really interesting because he, at one point, he says, "You know, you all know me, and you know that this is the first time." that I have ever gotten political in the pulpit. So this is not this is not someone who even really felt that comfortable getting political in the pulpit. Um, and I think rightly so, um, that's not the pastor's responsibility. The pastor is, is to preach God's word, um, which is about the souls of God's people. There, there are various things that the pastor is going to say and preach that are gonna be relevant for living in this world, but that's not the focus of, of preaching. Uh, and yet Witherspoon, he feels that things are so um, that they're so um, difficult to understand for so many people at that point in time that he has to help his people. So he really does have a pastoral impulse here. People they they're struggling to know what to do, um, and and he he spends the first half of the sermon in many ways ben, it's just like a, a standard. Yeah, Josh, I, I have a quick just setting the table question before yeah. we get into some of the specifics. Was, do you know? Do we know if this sermon was preached in a church or um, or at a college? And and does that matter? Um, so it was it was preached. Well, you know, it's interesting. I know it was pre preached in Princeton. Um, I'm not sure if it was preached at the college or in a church. Um, I, I'm not actually positive about that. That that would be interesting. Uh, you know, he he does at one point in the sermon he actually mentions his his um his hesitation in some ways to to um to be getting political and I, I'm not sure if he if he actually says there um okay so yeah so he, there's this quote um closer to the end where he says you're all my witnesses that this is the first time of my introducing any political subject into the pulpit now granted that could be chapel you know a chapel um, in the college, and perhaps he, he's still preaching the college. I'm not sure about that. Um, but I think he, he certainly sees this as kind of standard sermon. Um, it's not a lecture. It's not um, just a, a talk of some sort. 
Mm. Got it. Yeah. So he he um he he spends the first half of the sermon just giving a kind of standard exegetical sermon of his text. Um, his his text um, is um, uh, Psalm seventy six verse ten. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Um, and and he, he just preaches a, a faithful sermon, applying it uh, to the people. I mean, he's very, he's very concerned to show them um, the, the nature of sin and condemnation that, um, that all men are under uh, and the salvation that is only to be found in, in Christ and Christ alone. So he's very clear on the atonement, on um, all of these kind of key Protestant distinctives, and he's applying it very warmly uh, to the people. I mean, this is the kind of sermon you could hear preached in a faithful uh, Reformed Baptist church today or um, a, a Presbyterian church, and, and you wouldn't even bat an eye, really, in the first half. Uh, and, and so the reason I wanted to talk about this sermon, though, is, is more to do with the second half of the sermon. And, and one of the things we we're trying to do at American Reformer is show Christians how to faithfully approach um, issues that are cultural, that are political. I think one of the best ways to do that is, is just to show people examples from history of people who didn't compromise on the, the core Protestant distinctives. Um, they, 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 in other words, they, they didn't become social gospelers. Um, they didn't abandon um, a, a very strong focus on eternal salvation and spiritual things, but they also emphasized uh, the importance of living as a faithful citizen um, in the world. And I think that's what the, the second half of his sermon uh, does so well. Yeah. And the, the, I want to jump in here, Ben. I mean, the, the, yeah. it seems that following the, prominence of the culture warriors and that sort of generation of Christian leaders, even looking at folks like Francis Schaeffer, or then shifting over to the more mainstream evangelical people like, you know, Jerry Falwell, the reformed world sort of moved into a spot where, you know, folks basically said, you know, it's a bright line rule. You don't talk about partisan politics from the pulpit. Um, and there's some sense in, in that support for that. Um, you know, in scripture, it's, it's, you, you would say that there's a duty not to bind the consciences of your congregation in a way that scripture doesn't bind consciences. So, you, you know, you might say very easily that when it comes to disagreements about, you know, tax policy or disagreements about, you know, is global warming happening? If it is, what should the state do about it? Um, that seems to be a pretty universally held canard, even even to this day, amongst a lot of faithful, theologically conservative, reformed people. Um, so, so I, as as we go through this, I'd like to sort of keep an eye on, you know, what is what is the test? When does it become, you know, first of all, is that general principle a valid one? And then, secondly, even if it is the general operating procedure, when does it actually become incumbent upon a pastor to wade into politics and actually recommend particular courses of action or particular prudential judgments to their flock. 
Yeah, I think that's such a, a great question. Um, and that's that's what a lot of people are struggling with. And you're exactly right that those uh, of a reformed theological conviction, it's not everyone, but um, a, a lot of them, I, th I think, have reacted very strongly against the Jerry Falwells of the world. And there's various probably legitimate reasons why they they find that some of that distasteful. Um, I think that they have they've reacted in such a way, though, to to sometimes neglect um, things that are really important. And and one of the best ways that I can think of to, to show that, I mean, in addition to going to scripture and, and looking at what what the, the state is meant to do and, and how that's actually a, an important thing for Christians to understand and, and to support um, is it, just going back to these older figures who have impeccable theological credentials. No one, no one could accuse them of, of compromising on any point of the gospel. Uh, and, and here I have people in mind like um, Samuel Rutherford, who's so so well known for his spiritual writings, and at the same time is writing uh, political treatises. Um, or um, some some people I've been uh, interacting with lately, uh, Stephen Charnock, who is famous for his book The Existence and Attributes of God. But he has a huge section in in, in his dealing with atheism, where he talks about the societal and even political uh, ramifications of atheism and accepting atheism. And so he's, he's very much getting into, uh, into matters of, of politics, um, of political action, or, or Charles Hodge, um, who in his systematic theology, he has a, a very lengthy section when he's talking about the, the Sabbath command and and he gets into um, into what a, a a a Christian nation should be, and he's very insistent. America is a Protestant nation, um, and its laws should support that, and should prevent anything that would undermine that. He's he's also um, he's also in a certain sense very very um, tolerant. Um, he, he's fine with people worshiping how they desire, even within America, and yet not doing so in such a way that would subvert the idea that America's laws should actually support um, the, the, the idea that we're a, a Protestant uh, nation. And so Witherspoon's very much in that trajectory. I think when, when people can see that, they can see that people could hold together absolutely sound Protestant convictions about the gospel, about Christ, about salvation, about the church, um, and could even recognize what you said. Um, pastors shouldn't bind the consciences of their people. They can't if Scripture doesn't allow them to. So what's so fascinating about that with Witherspoon is, is he's clearly he clearly feels that burden himself. And, and that's why he says, he says that at this season, however, it is not only lawful but necessary. And I willingly embrace the opportunity of declaring my opinion without any hesitation that the cause in which America is now in arms is the cause of justice, of liberty, of human nature. Um, he, he, he says essentially that the times have become so dire that I have to address this or else I'm essentially going to be abandoning my spiritual responsibility to, to shepherd the people of God so that they can figure out how to deal with this. And this is not just something that they could just say, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna stay out of it. I'm gonna take the third way. Uh, that wasn't really a possibility um, in America at that point. 
um, if you took the third way, then you were going to you were going to become the enemy of someone and you wouldn't be left alone. So people have to figure this out um, in his time. Yeah, it, it reminds me we had um, a couple of months back, we ran Andrew Walker on the issue of abortion, essentially arguing that, you know, the um, the moral gravity and the stark divide between the political parties on the issue of abortion was such that um, it actually rose to the level of justifying pastors, you know, instructing their flocks not to vote for pro-choice candidates. And that would typically be Democratic candidates. Um, if, if there's a, you know, presumably with the caveat that if, if there's a alternative available on the ballot, a feasible alternative, um, yeah, no, because some people live in cities that are under essentially one party rule, but right. But um, and, then, and then we've, you know, we've similarly had, um, I would say, somewhat analogous articles um, about, for instance, the laws in California. Um, we had uh, uh, Andrew Branch, I believe, wrote, wrote on the new law in California that allows the state to step in and mandate um, minor gender transitions without parental consent, even over parental objection. Um, you know, I guess query, as we look at Witherspoon's context relative to our own, it seems to me fairly clear that we are under, we are in circumstances that are, that are similarly uh, dire, where there's not really a third way. And the gravity of the moral issues that are actually at stake in our political life um, compel pastors to to speak to politics and even make recommendations, partisan recommendations, frankly. Yeah, that's right. We're, we're not, we're not, um, we're not dealing with one political party that wants an 8% uh, sales tax and one political party wants a, a 10% sales tax. And then you say, okay, if my pastor got up in the pulpit and said only 8% is legitimate, I, I'd have a problem with that. Um, you know, he shouldn't be saying that. <laughs> that's just, that's not yeah. a, a way that he can bind my conscience. Yeah, no, no, I think you're exactly right um, that there are times and this is this is what's motivating Witherspoon to preach the sermon where the issues rise to the level that they have to be addressed um, because there's there's not the possibility of just sitting back. And, and like you said, the transgender thing in California, the, the law, I mean, that's a perfect example. You can't just be neutral about that. Um, and it's going to it's going to require thinking about how to interact with the state and uh, in that particular instance, even um, um, preventing the state from uh, from doing evil to your own children, perhaps. Yeah. Um, I, one of the things I, I love about Witherspoon's sermon is he has a pastor's heart all throughout it. Um, he's he's he never loses that, even when he starts talking about about the war. Um, he, for instance, he he will he will. Um, exhort the people to be careful that they humble themselves. He, he notes that some of the more fervent revolutionary figures around him are um, are, are making really great boasts, and, and and you know they're kind of saying, you know, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And he says, you need to be very careful to put your trust in God, to to humble yourself and and seek His favor. Um, and and not become arrogant and boastful. He, he's very concerned with the moral state of the army, 
um, and um, reports he's hearing about drunkenness and, and swearing and all these things in the army. So he, so he never loses his his um, his pastor's um, concern. I mean, he even even says that uh, he, he's talking about the king, and he says, "You shall not, my brethren, hear from me in the pulpit what what." Uh, you have never heard from me in conversation. I mean, railing at the king personally, or even as ministers in the parliament and people of Britain as so many barbarous savages. And, and they say, I, you know, I've never done that. Um, he, he's even trying to find a way to to do what Peter says in First Peter, to honor the emperor, uh, even, even as he's suggesting that the war against him is a just war. So I find that really, um, really fascinating. He's, he's, he's constantly thinking in terms of uh, pastoral care. Um, he, he's, he's really, I mean, he's very much following in the, the tradition of, of Protestant resistance uh, thinking um, here. Um, he, he, is, uh, he, he says at one point in the sermon, he's talking about the, the, the British. He says, many of their actions have probably been worse than their intentions. I, I do not refuse submission to their unjust claims because they are corrupt or profligate, although probably many of them are so, but because they are men and therefore liable to all the selfish bias inseparable from human nature. I call this claim unjust of making laws to bind us in all cases whatsoever, because they are separated from us, independent of us, and have an interest in opposing us. Now, obviously, people could, could debate um, his reasoning there, and, and if it's even a just war or legitimate or anything like that. Um, but but his, his basic claim is that, that the situation has devolved to the point where it is actually tyrannical, the, the British are tyrannical over them. And that's the only reason he sees it as being just to, to resist is that they have gotten uh, to the point where they have transgressed their legitimate authority. Um, so he, he, he says to to his people, um, he says, if your principles are pure, um, if your present opposition to the claims of the British ministry does not arise from a seditious and turbulent spirit or a wanton contempt of legal authority, from a blind and factious attachment to particular persons or parties, or from a selfish, rapacious disposition and a desire to turn public confusion to private profit, but from a concern for the interest of your country and the safety of yourselves and your posterity. So he's very concerned to make sure that, that the motives are even right in all this, is that um, it's a resistance against um, an authority that has usurped its God-given uh, role. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about his pastoral exhortations in contrast to um, what we tend to hear from the pulpit today. And, you know, um, I think we often hear pastors sort of very broadly condemn the culture wars. Let's not get into culture wars. You know, people need the gospel. They don't need culture warring. Um, it strikes me that Witherspoon's ex exhortations are actually much more surgical. He's accepting the justice of the overall cause. And then, you know, that being the case, sort of assuming that the people that he's preaching to are justifiably involved in this effort, he then, um, he then gives them pastoral guidance as they pursue those efforts. So it would really, the analog for today might be a pastor exhorting uh, their flo his flock to 
to go into the public square, to go be an advocate for um, for policies that promote human flourishing um, and and to to watch their heart as they do so. Um, and that 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 sort of message is actually not, you know, frankly, it's just not as as commonly heard, I think, uh, today as we might like it to be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, there, there are plenty of people who are are pursuing politics and, and, and culture war and, the, and they're very militant in it um, without without the um, without the, the check of God's word. And, and, um, and I think that's a, that's a really good point that um, how you go about it is is just as important as what you're seeking to do. You know, if, if your yeah. means of it, of attaining victory are corrupt, then you corrupt your soul. And, um, and you, you, I mean, honestly, people put their eternal salvation in jeopardy and that that's, you know, for, for what cost to, to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul. Um, you know, I, I was thinking, obviously there's a lot of discourse about Christian nationalism, um, now. And so as I was reading this, I was kind of asking the question, um, despite all the, the ambiguities about that phrase, you know, what would we say about Witherspoon? You know, does, does he fall into a, a kind of proto-Christian nationalism? Um, he, he has some things he says. Uh, this is just one quote from the sermon. He says, when the manners of a nation are pure, when true religion and internal principles maintain their vigor, the attempts of the most powerful enemies to oppress them are commonly baffled and disappointed. So he believes the cause is just, and he also thinks that uh, true Christianity should be the motivating factor in this. Um, so you could say, you know, is that a is that a form of of Christian nationalism? I think for for Witherspoon, and I don't, he's not particularly unique in this. He he sees Christianity flourishing as being necessary for the well being of the state and the well being of the nation as well, not just the government, but the, the nation as a whole. Although he is, he is very much um, a, if you called him a Christian nationalist, he's very much a non-establishment of, uh, of religion, Christian nationalist. Um, it's a non-establishmentarian form. Um, he, he says this at one point, he says, what follows from this? That he is the best friend to American liberty, who is most sincere and active in promoting true and undefiled religion and who sets himself with the greatest firmness to bear down profanity and immorality of every kind. So he's like, well, that sounds like uh, what a lot of people would say is Christian nationalism. But then he says, whoever is an avowed enemy to God, I scruple not to call him an enemy to his country. Do not suppose, my brethren, that I mean to recommend a furious and angry zeal for the circumstantials of religion or the contentions of one sect with, with another about their peculiar distinctions. I do not wish you to oppose anybody's religion, but everybody's wickedness. Um, so, so he's certain that, that obedience to God is necessary for the well-being of the nation. Uh, he's very concerned about, uh, about that. But he also does not believe that the state should try to step into um, denominational issues. Um, I think he, he wants to see the Christian... Uh, the nation founded on Christian principles, and that would be reflected in the laws, even. Yeah, um, but I, I he, want to park on something yeah, in that quote, Ben. Um, it's fascinating. He he, early in that quote, he actually opposes. He puts in opposition 
um, American liberty and profanity and immorality. So in other words, the, the, you promote American liberty best, he says, by suppressing profanity and immorality of every <laughs> kind. Yeah. Um, it, it's just worth draw, highlighting that um, given the libertarian or, or maybe libertine overlay that all of us are sort of used to wearing when we look back at the founding and, you know, look at the, well, for example, the Declaration of Independence, you know, everyone has the right to pursue happiness. Um, you know, we read a modern libertine understanding into that document, but, um, you know, that, that, that phrase really ought to, it, it meant at the time, the right to pursue eudaimonia, right? The right to pursue the well-lived human life and the, the goods that are attendant to that, you know, marriage, work, family, those sorts of things. Um, so, so important that we peel off the libertine uh, interpretive layers we've built up over time. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, I've talked about that a, a lot and um, we've got all of these discussions today about uh, post-liberalism and things like that. And this is something that we're going to return to um, many times, I'm sure. But um, try, trying to get a, a, a proper definition or understanding of the word liberty. Liberty is a good word. It's been corrupted. Um, it's been corrupted by the by the, the form it's taken in 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 the the liberalism that has developed you know some aspects of of um, liberalism especially with people like John Stuart Mill all the way up to to uh, Rawls today um, and different figures like that and so there's been some who've kind of reacted against that word even you know liberty is a bad word um, we, we we need to be post liberal and move beyond that and they're they're reacting to real problems. But you're exactly right. This, this word liberty in Witherspoon's understanding is actually liberty that's founded on godliness. It, 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 it's a more biblical understanding of liberty, that, that true liberty is freedom from sin, freedom from being a slave to sin, freedom from, from, um, from corruption that's within. And he rightly recognizes that no nation can thrive and even maintain good liberty, genuine liberty, where, where the people are free to pursue virtue and to do right and, and to have a healthy nation, unless there is godliness in the nation. Yeah. Yep. Um, well, so uh, just to, to, to close this, I want to move on um, into our next discussion, but I thought it would just be um, worth reading how he, he closes his sermon here, kind of his final exhortation. Uh, he says this, he says, upon the whole, I beseech you to make a wise improvement of the present threatening aspect of public affairs and to remember that your duty to God, to your country, to your families and to yourselves is the same. True religion is nothing else but an inward temper and outward conduct suited to your state and circumstances in providence at any time. And as peace with God and conformity to him, as to the sweetness of created comforts while we possess them. So in times of difficulty and trial, it is in the man of piety and inward principle that we may expect to find uncor an uncorrupted patriot, the useful citizen and the invincible soldier. God grant that in America, true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable and that the unjust attempts to destroy the one may in the issue tend to the support and establishment of both. 
Now we're we're in, I think you could say similarly perilous times today. I think um, everyone seems to recognize that um, that things are 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 very uh, going very badly wrong in so many ways in our country. And uh, you've been uh, doing uh, a lot of thought about this recently, um, moving into uh, current events and, and this, uh, this language of uh, national divorce it seemed to be more of a, a fringe idea for a while, but now it's starting to pop up everywhere, really. Um, could you tell us what that is and, and what you think about it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, moving from the sublime to the ridiculous here, the fever mm. swamps of the internet. Um, yeah, the national divorce, you know, I mean, there's always been a, a contingent that's talked about it. You know, perhaps 20 years ago, it would have been the John Birch Society. Um, you know, and then maybe five or six years ago, you know, Obergefell was a big, big one on this. But um, following Obergefell, um, you know, you heard a little bit more chatter about it. There's a there's a uh, popular talk show host and Twitter personality named uh, Jesse Kelly, interesting, funny guy. But he he started talking about, you know, we need national divorce. Oh, probably five years ago, he's been banging that drum. Um, there's been a gradual uptick in, I would say, the mainstreaming of this concept. Uh, the American mind, which is very good at, um, I think seeing trends early and picking them up that, you know, maybe start in, in strange corners of the internet, but, but kind of come to mainstream acceptance, you know, the American mind uh, ran a symposium on, on national divorce uh, sometime back and, you know, unpacked it, had a variety of perspectives on this, this idea. But um, in the past week, I think we've crossed the Rubicon a little bit in the sense that we have a, uh, a Congresswoman uh, actually, you know, in office now stating plainly, we need a national divorce. So um, I think it was back on uh, Monday, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted, we need a national divorce. We need to separate by red states and blue states and shrink the federal government. Everyone I talk to says this. From the sick and disgusting woke culture issues shoved down our throats to the Democrats' traitorous America last policies, we are done. We are done. So, so, so that's uh, she. She tweeted that out. Um, you know, I think we have to park for a second and just note the um, extraordinary nature of the fact that we are in a spot right now where uh, elected folks in Congress are making statements like this. Um, and you know, her her statement uh, kicked off a firestorm of uh, very critical commentary, very positive commentary. Um, but but it seems like the one the one piece fundamentally that everybody is basically aligned on is um, there there are there are tensions in our social fabric that are different in kind from previous political disagreements that we've had. Uh, that seems to be a universally accepted premise. Um, you know, flowing those those who deny that premise, I think, frankly, are just are are in denial or living in sort of an unrealistic, um, you know, bubble people, some will tend to downplay our divisions and say, well, you know, our divisions are really just attributable to social media or cable news. You know, these things divide people. They just want to get clicks. They just want to make money. And, you know, therefore, you know, these siloed, um, media sources for people's consumption are, are further, um, 
exacerbating divisions and profiting off of them. You know, Mitt Romney uh, has kind of famously talked about this quite a bit. Um, other sort of moderates uh, on both sides of the aisle like to talk about it that way as if the problem is sort of merely a, a technological problem, like we'll get past this, you know, we just need to learn how to sort of responsibly use Twitter and, you know, the internet. Um, but which, which, I, I which think, is, yeah. Well, it, it, it's interesting that, that you'd have some people speaking in that way because uh, it, it seems like the only people who, or the people that are, that are the most um, alarmed by that language are the people who are the beneficiaries of the kind of technocratic um, uh, deep state uh, that exists in America, um, where you've got the Fauci's of the world who who really make the decisions that that affect our lives, and um, and, and for people who are who are benefiting from that, um, it's not really surprising that they wouldn't they wouldn't be able to see uh, what the rest of us see, which is we can't even agree on what a human being is. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's right. There's a certain class of folks who are, um, and, and I don't think it's widely distributed, but, the, but there is a certain class of folks who are clear winners under the current status quo and uh, really just don't, um, you know, they, uh, it's hard to get people to see things um, when their salary depends upon them not seeing them. Right. And, uh, sim similarly here, um, you know, there, there's a class of people who don't want to see the problem for what it is and, and they'll rationalize it away. Um, but, but to your point, this sort of technological explanation for our divisions is, I just don't think it's fundamentally satisfying. The disagreements that the American people have amongst themselves are on issues that really, I mean, reach down right into the home and right into your family. You know, I, I say this occasionally, but here's a good heuristic for, you know, a healthy society. Do you do you live in a place where you um, are comfortable with your kids running out of your front door and playing with the kids next door, you know, roaming your neighborhood? Um, we have differences now that um, make that answer extremely that you're going to answer that question very differently if you live in San Francisco um, or, you know, Cambridge, Massachusetts, or if you live in a suburb of Dallas, Texas. Right. Um, and so, you know, th there are, there are fundamental issues that, um, you know, you don't, it's not merely that you're worried about what might be forced upon your kids, but you worry about what they might be exposed to. And is it, is it permanently jarring or, or traumatic psychologically to them? Um, and, and so, yeah, this these issues get down right down to the community level. Who am I going to live next to? And and uh, you know, do we share enough in common to, to kind of share civic and social organizations together? Um, yeah. And and I think increasingly people are saying no, no, we don't really. And that's I think partly why there's uh, you know the big sort is going on, and there's you know the immigration numbers between states. Um, are sort of incredible. States are getting more polarized. It's a secular trend. Both blue states and red states are getting uh, tending towards uh, one party rule, tending towards having a political consensus. Um, and, and while all of that's happening, of course, the gridlock at the federal level is just worsening. Um, you know, the, the um, we never, we don't really have 
super majorities anymore. Every election is a razor's edge. Um, and, and that being the case, it's often very tough for any uh, administration to pass marquee legislation, to, to innovate, to, to pass, you know, new laws. And which that then means, you know, the executive branch of the federal government is having to, um, I, I would say, often stretch the law to sort of legislate through administrative action. Um, and th- this is oftentimes this is action that is of more questionable legitimacy. And when, when, when that's happening, when the president is, is enacting policy changes that are of questionable legitimacy, it significantly raises the risk of states disobeying, states disregarding, states defying federal directives. Um, this is a secular trend. It's increasing. Um, blue states uh, tend to, uh, you know, blue states are sanctuary states, right? They defy federal immigration law. When there's, a, when there's an administration at the federal level that wants to enforce our immigration laws, blue states actively oppose and undermine that, uh, that federal administration. Um, when, you know, marijuana is a good example. Um, we still have to this day federal laws on the books that say what happened, you know, that criminalize the possession and trafficking of marijuana. Um, but, you know, states have essentially just uh, uh, passed uh, laws that are sort of inconsistent with federal law, and the federal government has acquiesced to that. Um, you know, on the flip side, um, if you know, I, th- I think that President Biden has actually been very uh, hesitant to get aggressive about guns. There's been some noise about an executive order that would um, ban AR-15s or other assault rifles, for example. And he's not done so. And I, I think the real reason why he hasn't done so is because there's a credible threat of red state governors simply saying, no, we're not going to enforce that here. We're actually going to actively oppose the enforcement of that executive order in our state. So this, as a secular trend, because of the federal divisions, I think you are seeing a move where um, the federal government can't act as efficiently. And in that vacuum, state governments are stepping up and they're claiming more of the incidences of sovereignty. They are um, I, in my, in my view, they're actually reclaiming, um, the, the police powers, those powers that they traditionally had under our constitutional bargain, uh, issues relating to health, safety, and morals. And, um, you know, I think, I think the, the national divorce question, I think then really becomes a question of, um, can our constitutional structure as it is flex enough to accommodate um, the, the deep social division we have in our country, or instead, does our old constitutional structure need to break? And, you know, that, so, you know, Card- is, that, is Card- that the, is that what the, the, the national divorce proponents, I mean, is, are they, are they suggesting that we just break it or, or are they suggesting somehow that we're just going to have this nice, peaceful, um, separation, um, and everyone goes their own way and, and, and everything goes fine. I mean, how, yeah, how Marjorie, Marjorie Taylor Greene's tweet is a little bit 
ambivalent about this because she says, shrink the federal government. We need to separate red states and blue states. Shrink the federal government. It's, it's, it's unclear to me exactly if she means she might just be using provocative language to argue for reinvigorated federalism. Um, but, you know, I do know other, other proponents of the national for, uh, divorce idea are probably more explicit. And they say, really, there, there can't be a federal government that sits over these states anymore because the issues are too significant. Um, mm. I think that's an open question, but a couple observations from my view on all of this talk. First of all, I think it should be clear to every reasonable person that, you know, where we sit today, you know, we can't, you know, there's not going to be a national divorce tomorrow, or if there is, it's going to be, it's going to be really messy and, you know, probably a lot of suffering. And, it, you know, the, 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 the real divide, the way it's geographically distributed in our country is cities versus uh, suburbs and country side. And, um, you know, you go state by state, go to our state in Texas, you know, you, you've got Dallas blue as can be, and then you've got all these deep red suburbs and, and rural areas. And that's kind of how the, it's kind of how things look across the country, essentially. So, so there's going to be, um, as the demographics exist today, there would just be massive dislocation and, you know, and all of this, um, at more fundamental level, you know, states don't have like states governments are not used to acting like sovereigns. You know, there's all kinds of functions that um, they are not currently equipped to undertake and really couldn't undertake without significant reorganization and practice and talent and all of this. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, you know, I, I, I think that realistically the path forward actually is just, just kind of gradual, gradual reinvigorated federalism. Um, you know, what Ron DeSantis is doing and, and interestingly, and, you know, he's, he's actually doing some things that are aggrandizing federal functions. Like he established a rival, essentially a rival parallel CDC. He has his own public health organization in Florida now. And, and that, I, I think you'll see more of that. Um, and then I think there's some ambiguity about where it all goes. I mean, I, I don't think there's a national divorce in the next 10 years, to be totally clear. Right. But if if states are aggrandizing sovereignty relative to the federal government over the next 50 years, um, you know, what what things look like in 50 or 100 years, it's very hard to say. And, um, you know, we know changing borders, changing political bodies and all the rest. I mean, these are all fluid things. They come and go. Um, will that happen eventually? I, I think that's very possible, um, given, you know, given a more longer, longer time horizon. Um, you know, but, but fun, finally, I would say, you know, the, this is a discussion that's happening. It's going to continue. It's probably going to intensify. And, you know, the, the, probably the best way forward is not clutching our pearls and saying, this is terrible. This is traitorous, this, this, and that, you know, the way forward is actually, harnessing this energy and using it to effective political action at the state level. Let's, let's build what we can. Let's focus on those areas where prudent and moral people have political power and build what we can, um, you know, and to some respect, leave the ultimate results uh, up to Providence.
Yeah, no, I, I like that. I, I mean, I like the fact, and this is something we, we've tried to emphasize at American Reformer is try, try to do something where you are, you know, try to get involved um, and, and seeing someone like DeSantis uh, do that and, and try to, to make an impact r- rather than what, what could seem to some degree to be a, a council of despair, which is things are so bad, which they are, um, and, and there's such incompatibility between two groups of people that you, you just think somehow, you know, it's like human marriages that are falling apart. You know, they think somehow it, 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 it's just going to be better if we just split, but it's not always, um, and, and as most people I think that have gone through a divorce know, I mean, that, that's not often better. Uh, and, that, and that's not to deny those very real issues that you're, you're highlighting. Um, because they are real issues. Again, the only people that that don't see that are people that benefit from the current um, arrangement. Um, the rest of us, you know, sane people in America that see that if you can't even agree on what a human being is, um, then then you're going to have really significant problems. Realize that we've got to do something. Uh, I, I, I like what, what I'm hearing from you is, is as far as looking at people who who can do something and, and not just give up in, in despair and sort of fantasize for the day in which somehow it's going to magically be better. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the maybe the bottom line is, um, you know, we can't, uh, there might be a temptation amongst some conservatives for national divorce to become this uh, deus ex machina solution that will fall out of the clouds and fix all of our political problems. Um, and I think we have to recognize, well, you know, um, really the, the necessary predicate step is practicing leadership, practicing the prudent exercise of power where we have it. Um, we need those reps. Um, and it's, it's uh, you know, talking about uh, significantly reworking our political landscape before we even have credible political leaders is, uh, is, is, can be sort of putting the cart before the horse. Yeah, well, that, that's that's very good. I, I mean, it seems like a, a, a good ending note to me, um, unless you have uh, additional comments or thoughts on that. No, no, not at all. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Ben. Um, yep, thanks, Josh. Thank you to uh, our audience. Appreciate you yeah. listening as always. Yep, until next time. Um, thanks for joining us on the American Reformer Podcast. Thank you for listening to the American Reformer podcast. Make sure to visit us online at AmericanReformer.org. That's AmericanReformer.org. You can also follow us on Facebook and on Twitter at AMReformer. <laughs>